going to continue on this week. And the theme, if you'll recall, was one-way love. And so as we get into this consideration, once again, of one-way love, and what Jesus has to say about the sort of love that ought to characterize his disciples, let me just share with you what may be a familiar story for some of you. But back in January of 1956, five missionaries landed on a, a little sandbar out in the jungles of Ecuador as they were preparing to share the gospel with an unreached people group known as the Aka Indians. Now, the Aka Indians were known to be a pretty terrific sort of bunch in the sense that they, were, they terrified their neighbors, that they were, they were very much isolationists. They didn't want anyone else coming into their territory, and they would often kill those who came anywhere close. And yet, as these missionaries had begun their work down in Ecuador, they had learned about these people and they had gained a heart to share with them the love of Christ in hopes that this bunch of hateful individuals would come to know the love of Christ and have all of their eternity transformed. And so they had begun doing some work to kind of warm up the relationship. They, they had begun by plane to fly and drop down buckets of gifts for the Aka Indian people. And as those gifts were received, eventually over a span of three months, the missionaries began to receive gifts back to them. So the Indian tribe was taking these gifts, obviously enjoying them, and preparing things to give back, to place back into the basket of those avi- aviationary missionaries who were flying above. Well, upon this landing on January of 1956, the missionaries first received a pretty warm sort of welcome. There were a couple of greetings that they had with the Aka Indian tribe that went well. But sadly, this would turn out to be their final missionary journey, their final flight, as three days after they landed, the Aka Indians turned against them. And all five of those missionaries died, died at the end of an Aachen spear. What makes that story amazing? What makes that story one of the most memorable accounts of any missionary service in the history of missionaries is not the event where these men died. It is the unconditional love that flowed out of that. You see, while these men had been there, while they had been preparing... They had been gathering together with their families outside of the jungle at a missionary station in another place where a couple of individuals had left that Aka Indian tribe and were now teaching them the language of the Aka Indians. Obviously, if they're going to communicate the gospel to them, they've got to have some sort of way to convey what that gospel is. So they were studying together to learn the language. And among the group of those who were studying were the wife of one of those missionaries who died, and the sister of another. So one of the missionaries, the one who was a pilot, was uh, the, the, the husband of one of these ladies. And then, and then another one of the men who was killed uh, was Jim Elliott. And his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, was there uh, studying as well. So, so that we've got a, a sister and a wife who are gathering together, studying this language, And they'd been communicating with their husbands via radio during this missionary trip. And so when the waves went silent, they knew that things had gone wrong. And essentially what had happened 
they came to learn later was that their loved ones, their husband, their brother, had been killed. But in that moment, none of us would have blamed these ladies if they had packed it all up and headed back home. None of us would have blamed them if they had said, this is a lost cause. These individuals have shown that they have no desire to hear the gospel. They have shown that they are enemies of God and his mission. None of us would blame them if they scurried away, tucking their tails. But that is not what these women chose to do. Instead, as their loved ones were killed, these women write that they found in that moment that they found their hearts spiritually bound to the Aka Indian people. So much so that four years, roughly around four years after their husband and brother were executed, Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot moved to live among the Aka Indian people. And through their tireless efforts, through their willingness to give love to those who had proven themselves to be their enemies, they won the tribe of the Aka people to Christ. And in this selfless sacrifice, in this one-way sort of love that never gave up on people in spite of the fact that they'd proven themselves to be Indians, there is now still to this day a strong Christian presence in the jungles of Ecuador where the Aka Indian people are now striving for the Lord, planting churches, seeking to win others to his kingdom. And friends, I just want to tell you, that is a different sort of love. That is not the sort of love that we expect to see based on our experiences here in this world. But if we really examine what Jesus has to say for us regarding what love should look like, I think the real question we ought to be asking ourselves is, why don't we see more of this sort of love? Because ultimately that's the sort of love that Jesus is teaching us that we need to be pursuing as we look into his word here in Luke chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I ask you to find your way to Luke chapter 6 as we study together. And, and we're in the midst of this sermon that, I, that is really the third in a series of what I've titled Discipleship 101, right? Jesus has called 12 men to come and spend life with him in preparation that they would be ready to carry on his ministry and his mission once he had ascended into heaven. And so as he calls these 12 disciples, he steps down off of the mountain, and as he's there, he begins to speak to them this famous sermon that we look at in Luke chapter 6. The entirety, well, of Luke chapter 6 to the end is going to cover that sermon for us. And Jesus, in this sermon, is teaching us what it means to be a disciple of him. Do you want to follow Jesus? Well, the the Bible says that Jesus turned his gaze toward his disciples as they're freshly called and shared this message with him. These are the basic fundamentals of what it means to be a follower of him. And what we're going to find here is a radical story of radical love, the sort of love that would give of yourself even to those who had proven to be your enemies. And so we began last Sunday to look at this concept of one-way love. You know, society around us thinks that ultimately love that is not returned to you is no love at all. And we hear so often of individuals saying, well, I just keep giving and I keep giving and I keep giving and 
there's just no love there because nothing is coming back to me. We expect love to be a two-way street, right? We expect I send love out, you return love back to me. If nothing comes back in that return lane, we assume that there is no love going on. But Jesus shows us something radically different when we come to his word in Luke chapter 6. We must be willing to love others even when there's no chance of that love being returned back to us. And that's what Jesus shows us here in Luke chapter 6. So join me now as we look at this passage once again as we continue our examination of the sort of love that Christ calls his disciples to. And if you're able, and it's not a labor for you, I just ask that once again you would stand with us as we read together God's word in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. Right? Here is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. You may be seated. So from this passage, we began last week to look at six characteristics of what I would summarize as one-way love. This sort of love which gives and expects nothing in return. This is the sort of love that Jesus is calling for his disciples to display. And let me just quickly remind you of the first three characteristics of one-way love that we began to look at last week. The first was this. One-way love selects an unconventional target. We talked last week about how the world expects us to love individuals who are lovely to us. Right? The, love expects, the, the world expects us to love individuals who do good things for us. The world expects us to make an investment that ultimately will return on our investment with something that comes back to us. That's the conventional target of who the world says we ought to love. And by nature, by our very nature, we, we typically choose to love those who have proven to be worthy of our love. We choose to love those who are beneficial to us. But Jesus calls for us to love an unconventional target there in verse 27. He calls for us to love our enemies. He calls for us to do good to those who curse us and hate us. He calls for us to bless them. He calls for us to pray for those who mistreat us. And that's why we call this one-way love. Jesus calls for us to love and to send out love in a direction to those who do not show any hint of potentially returning that love back to us. 
And one way love selects an unconventional target. That's the first characteristic of love that we saw last week. The second is this. One way love directs a personal sacrifice. So as we looked further into Jesus' teaching in verses 29 and 30, we saw that the love that Jesus calls us to exhibit is a very costly sort of love. It's a love that calls for us to sacrifice of ourselves. Even when we can't see any prospect for a return on our love investment. And one way love is a love that makes us vulnerable as we turn the other cheek when we are insulted or when we are physically assaulted rather than returning that same sort of abuse back in kind. One way love is a love that calls for us to give the very shirts off of our backs when our neighbor takes our coat away, Jesus says. It's a love that gives to everyone who asks And refuses to demand a return of those things which are ours, which have been taken away. It's a love which challenges our tendency to see threats to our personal comforts or our earthly possessions as reasonable excuses for us to withhold our love from other individuals. And and one-way love directs a personal sacrifice. So that's the second characteristic of one-way love that we saw last week. Here's the third. One-way love respects the interests of others in verse 31 we find jesus's command that we've summarized and and many of you know it as the golden rule christians have applied this metric as a golden standard for us and how we ought to interact with others whom we encounter if we're going to live for christ this is how you treat your neighbors and the golden rule is very much an expression of a one-way sort of love This rule doesn't call for us to wait and to see what others are doing for us before we decide if we're going to love them. This rule doesn't call for us to calculate how others might treat us if we were to love them before we decide whether or not we are going to actually love them. The rule of Jesus interrupts our personal interest with this important commandment. He says we are to treat others the same way we want them to treat us. And if we're going to treat others with a one-way love, we must imagine ourselves in, our, in their shoes. We must imagine the circumstances that they are going through, how life must be for them. What would be beneficial for me? What would be my needs if I was walking in that neighbor's shoes? How would I respond if I was going through that trial? That's a compassionate sort of pursuit. And that's how we see that one-way love respects the interests of others. Well, now we're caught up to the end of last week's message, and I want to just continue on with our examination of one-way love by looking at the fourth characteristic of one-way love. And here it is. One-way love neglects personal profit. One-way love neglects personal profit. We, We tend to look at the golden rule in the wrong way. And it's a common sort of thing to do, as a matter of fact. The golden rule, when it, when, it, when it is stated incorrectly, doesn't require much of us. It's a pretty low barrier for us to cross. In fact, when we oversimplify what Jesus commands us to do, we come out with something that's very common to many philosophies and religions around the world. Many world religions describe how we should not treat others. They tell us what we, what we should not do when we interact with our neighbors. That is, most religions say, don't treat people the way you don't want to be treated. 
That's a negative statement. You got what I'm saying? It's got the word not in there. Do not treat individuals in this particular way. It tells us how not to act. And if we leave the golden rule in this negative form, then we fall short ultimately of what Jesus calls us to do. Just to give you an example of how other philosophies, other religions, would tout this sort of diminished golden rule of what not to do to your neighbor, the Jewish rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. So, that, so if you hate something, right, if you don't like something, don't do that same thing to someone else. Likewise, the Chinese philosopher Confucius said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Greek philosopher uh, Epictetus said, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not inflict on others. So that's just the prevailing rule of mankind. Don't do to someone else the things that you don't want them to do to you because the general tendency, right, is that when you do something to someone else that they don't want done to them, they're going to do the same sort of thing or worse back to you, right? That's kind of the prevailing mentality of humanity. That's what we see all around us. And, and hear me on this. Refusing to do bad things to others that you don't want them to do to you is not wrong, right? I'm not going and telling you, you know, go out and do bad things to others because we're trying to celebrate the golden rule, and it's not that, right? No. What, what I'm telling you is that the golden rule goes beyond that. The golden rule doesn't just tell us the do-nots of how we interact with our neighbor. The golden rule tells us what we should be doing for our neighbor. You see, if, if the golden rule only tells me what not to do, and it never tells me what to do, then I can pretty comfortably ignore my neighbor's sufferings without feeling any kind of guilty conscience, just so long as I'm sure that I'm not the cause of those sufferings, right? I can look to my neighbor who's struggling with an addiction, and I say, well, I didn't give him the needle, I didn't give him the drugs, I didn't give him the pill bottle, I didn't give him the booze. So I can leave him alone to struggle through this thing and feel okay about it because I'm not the cause of that. Or I can look at my sister who's struggling with anxiety and depression and I can say, I didn't cause any of that. I didn't do to her what I would not want done to myself and so I'm okay to ignore her needy personality. Right? We can say that sort of thing if, if we're really just looking at the negatives because if the golden rule only tells us what not to do and never commands us what to do, then I'm in the clear so long as I am not the cause. But that is not how Jesus states the golden rule. He doesn't just tell us what not to do. He commands us to do something. He tells us to treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That word translated treat here in the New, New American Standard Bible really has the definition to make or to do. And therefore, I, I like the way the ESV words this verse. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. In the accurate wording of the golden rule, Jesus doesn't just call for us to avoid taking some actions against our neighbors. He calls for us to do something for Others who are in need. He calls for us to take action. And real love takes real action. Even when there's no hope of return of that action back toward us. 
You see, one-way love doesn't walk on the eggshells to avoid possibilities of inconvenience or harm. One-way love steps out of our comfort zones and into harm's way to make the sort of difference that we would like for someone else to make in our lives if we were in the same predicament. And that's a love that neglects personal profit. That is, we don't just love with an avoidance that saves our skin. We're not just loving because we expect to get something out of someone for that love. And based on the experiences that we have with others here on this planet, that's a very different sort of love than we're used to seeing touted as love here around us. The rest of the world loves so long as it's beneficial. But Jesus calls us to a love that neglects our personal profit. And the way of love ought to look pretty different from the way that people who do not know Jesus act in what they call love. That's why Jesus drives home this practical set of teachings that follows in verses 32 to 34. He's going to really put flesh on this theory of how we ought to love those who ultimately have no desire of loving us in return. As we've already emphasized, most people who choose to love, choose to love those who love them. But in verse 32, what does Jesus say? He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And here again, we encounter one of those challenging statements of Jesus. One of those things that really just kind of shocks us to the core. One of those things that we've really got to reconcile. If we're going to be a follower of Jesus, if we're really going to exhibit a disciple's love, then we're going to have to figure out how to live with this sort of love, how to take on this challenge that he calls us to. How can we live with a different sort of love than the sinners around us? Jesus says we ought to love with a one-way love if we are his followers. And I, I want to draw your attention to one particular word that shows up in these verses here. It's the word that's rendered credit. And all three of these examples that Jesus gives, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you here? And then again in verse 33, it says, If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? And then finally he asks in verse 34, If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? And what you should know is that this word, which is rendered in the New American Standard Bible as credit, is in the Greek the word charis. It's a word which is very frequent in the New Testament. It's a word that actually appears 156 times in the New Testament. And you should know that 122 of those 156 times that this word appears in the New Testament, it is translated as grace. It's translated as grace. We're talking about a word here that simply means grace. What is grace? Grace is just unmerited favor. When we talk about grace from a heavenly perspective, when we talk about grace coming from God, we're talking about when God gives us that which we do not deserve. So in a divine sort of perspective, we're talking about a a, a sort of gift that God gives that we don't deserve. But, But here, Jesus is talking about this a little more from a humanly sort of perspective. Wherein we are called to reflect that sort of grace by doing for others the things that they do not deserve we are we're called to express unmerited favor toward others 
And one-way love calls for us to give people good things they don't deserve. The call to be a disciple is the call to love with a love that is greater than what the world knows. And my friends, you must know that this love will be very costly at times. It will take and take from us, and it will never return in some instances. But one-way love neglects the personal profit. We don't look at the stat sheet to say what's going to be the return on this investment before we decide to live with the love that Christ calls us to here. And so I want to ask you, I want to ask those of you who are here today, who are you actively loving who does not deserve your love? If Jesus says that there's no grace on display when you love those who love you, then the implication of what he is describing is that his disciples are to love those who are not lovely. In fact, that's a unique characteristic of Jesus' disciples. This is something that causes those who are known as Christians, or it ought to cause those who are known as Christians, to shine like a diamond in the midst of a coal mine. Because this should be so different from what we see in the rest of the world. The rest of the world will love in a particular way. But Christians are called to love in a distinct way. And it's a love which loves those who offer no prospect of a return on that investment. Jesus calls for us to love those who refuse to love us in return. He calls for us to do good to those who do evil to us. He calls for us to lend to those who have nothing to lend to us. And that, my friends, is a one-way love. But let's pause for a moment in verse 34, just so I can give a little bit of clarification here. That's where Jesus says, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Now let me just clarify that in this verse, Jesus isn't commanding Christians to give everything they have away to other people without expecting it to be returned. If that was the case, this text would be talking about, and Jesus would be preaching about giving rather than lending. He uses specifically the word here that describes to lend here, though. In verse 34, he says, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive. Now, this word receive that Jesus uses here could also be translated as take. It's a word which most often is is translated with the word take. And Jesus is saying here, don't just lend to those whom you expect to lend back to you later down the road. He's he's not saying that if someone borrows something, you should never ask for it back, right? They were lying about borrowing from you if they never had any intention of bringing the thing back, right? Jesus isn't saying that you can't go and ask for your possessions back. What Jesus is saying is that we shouldn't have a personal interest in what we might be able to borrow from someone who wants to borrow from us later before we make the decision that we're going to lend what is ours to them. So let me explain that with, a, with an example. Say, for example, I have a neighbor who has a Corvette in his garage that he rarely drives, right? But he also, you know, he's got a Lexus that is his main vehicle, and he comes to me one day, and I've got an extra car in my garage that I'm not using on a regular basis. 
And he comes to me one day and says, you know, by this strange set of circumstances, my two cars are in the shop for this coming week. Would you, would you mind if I borrowed your car? Now, where my mind might tend to go in that moment is to say, well, you know, this could come back around to be my favorite at some point in the future, right? I'd really love to, to drive a, a Corvette, or I'd really love to drive a, a BMW. So, yeah, yeah, come on, borrow my car. If I'm willing to lend to him in that instance, but not willing to lend to my neighbor who has this old clunker of a car and comes to me in need and says, you know, my old clunker is in, is in the garage. Can I borrow your car for a week? If he, if he really has that need, and I'm willing to lend to one, but not willing to lend to the other because my car is really not a need to me either way, but I'm more focused on what I can get in return later on, then I'm violating what Jesus is describing here is the sort of mentality that we ought to have here. Our evaluation on whether or not we should lend should be whether or not doing so would meet a human need for someone else without depriving us of a real need that we have ourselves. If we use some other criteria to decide whether or not we're going to lend out these things which are our temporary possessions here on earth, then we're really acting no different than any other average sinner. That's what Jesus describes for us here. And so consider this. Who are you loving that cannot love you in the same way? Because one-way love neglects our personal profit. That's the fourth aspect of one-way, characteristic of one-way love that we see here. The fifth is this. One-way love expects a greater reward. Jesus summarizes his call to one-way love in verse 35. There he says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Why would we choose to, to live and love with a one-way sort of love. Well, because Jesus promises a reward to those who do. Now, this is not in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the first time that we've seen this word reward. As a matter of fact, we saw this word back in Luke chapter 6, verse 23, when he said, you should be glad in the day when people persecute you because of his name, for great is your reward in heaven. And, and one-way love is the sort of love that expects a great reward. Here's another way to say that. One-way love is driven by faith. Because ultimately, if I think that the trinkets I'm able to collect here on earth, if I think that the time that I'm able to invest here on earth, if I, if I understand that all the things that I could potentially lend out to my neighbor... If I understand that all the love I could potentially give in this exhausting sort of pursuit is just a temporary sort of thing, preparing for an eternal reward, then it makes that sacrifice so much easier for me. It makes it so much easier for me to understand that there is something greater, some greater prize. And Jesus is showing ultimately that there is a reward which is beyond what this world has to offer. And if this world is not all that there is. If reality really is an eternity that I will spend in the presence of an infinitely worthy king, then I can't waste my time in preparation for that eternity by exerting all of my efforts to make myself comfortable with the things that will soon pass away. I cannot exist to bring love to me 
when the heart of the one who holds my eternity loves and longs to reach and to receive the love of others that I encounter who might possibly bring to him eternal glory. And that is a calling, my friends, to prepare for a eternal reward. I must love for a greater reward than what I could experience here and now. Now, I'm not talking about the reward of salvation. Jesus isn't calling us in these verses to love in order that we can earn our way to heaven. We could never earn God's grace. We could never earn our own salvation. All of us is fallen. All of us is broken apart from Christ. There is no way for us to find anything that is meritorious in God's sight. God gives eternal life freely by grace through faith in Jesus. So don't hear me as saying, if you're not loving this sort of love, you're not earning your way to heaven. Because that's not what Jesus is teaching here. This is not a call to earn your salvation. But the fact that you and I can earn, cannot earn eternal salvation, doesn't mean that we cannot earn eternal rewards. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.3 that he who plants... And he who waters, God's work, that is, are one. But each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. He's talking about rewards here. Then he talks of a coming judgment in verses 13 through 15 of of 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, Each man's work will become evident for the day, that is, this day of coming judgment, will show it Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So Paul then writes, If any man's work which he has built on the foundation laid by Jesus remains, he will receive, there's that word again, a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So the reward we're talking about here is not the reward of being saved. It's something that's beyond that. Well, surely we'd love to know, right? What, what is this reward? But, but the truth is Jesus simply does not tell us here in Luke chapter 6. Nor does Paul explicitly say what that reward will be in 1 Corinthians 3. Could that reward for this one-way sort of love, could that be these crowns that we see sprinkled throughout various passages, which ultimately we find in Revelation are to be cast at Jesus' feet? Could they be? Potentially. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't give us a clear understanding of what that reward will be here. He simply says that your reward will be great. And my goodness, think about that. Jesus has all power all authority he reigns over all of creation it all belongs to him and yet as he talks about the reward that we will have for this one-way sort of love he describes that as great can you imagine what something great might look like in jesus's eyes i mean i've got to think that probably the reason jesus doesn't describe for us what that reward would be here in this passage It's because it's beyond our comprehension what his reward would be for those who would be faithful in this sort of one-way love. I truly believe that this is going to be an out-of-this-world sort of love. But I do want to say this. I don't have to know what my precise reward is going to be 
in order to live for Jesus, I simply need to know that the Savior will do what he says he will do. And and listen to me on this one. If simply being in the presence of Jesus, my Savior, will one day be my reward, then that is enough for me. If all the prize I ever have for every effort I undertake by faith in the Savior who gave himself for me is that I will be in his presence, then I will be satisfied for all of eternity. And if I live my life now with this confident assurance that he shall be my eternal prize, then my friends, I am at peace. You can give me crowns. You can give me authority. You can give me gold and silver and beautiful mansions, but if I don't have Jesus, I have nothing that I truly long for. He is the prize of my life. He is my heart's one true desire. If I must trade everything else in for him, then you can have it all, my friends. Just give me Jesus and I'll be satisfied. He is the one that rewards what my soul is longing for. And my friend, I just want to ask you, what is the chief prize of your life? Are you settling for anything less than what will be eternally glorious? Are you settling for anything less than Christ himself as your eternal reward? Are you investing your time, your energy, your money in things that are just going to be collected up and thrown away into the fire one day? Or are you, my friends, investing in that which lasts? Is Jesus your eternal reward? Because one way love expects a greater reward. That's the fifth aspect of one-way love. The the sixth characteristic of one-way love is this. One-way love reflects a greater mercy. As Jesus winds down his commands to live with this one-way love, he describes in the second half of verse 35 how those who live with this sort of love will be sons of the Most High. Now, in Jesus' day, individuals who express characteristics of someone or something other than themselves, in in any sort of way, would be described as sons of whatever they were reflecting, they they were exhibiting the characteristics of. That's why we read about sons of this age in Luke chapter 16 and Luke chapter 20, or the sons of those who murdered the prophets in Matthew 23, 31, or the sons of light in John chapter 12, sons of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3. Jesus makes it clear That when we love others with this selfless sort of one-way love, we are reflecting the Most High. We show ourselves to be sons of Him. And do you want to look like Almighty God? Then go and love someone who does not deserve to be loved. Because ultimately, our, our, our God causes His sun to shine and His rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God acts with grace toward those who don't deserve His love. And because of this, we can know what true love looks like. Maybe you're here today and and you've never been acquainted with what real love looks like. You've never known what what true love, this selfless sort of one-way love, could potentially look like. I just want you to know, my friends, 
I don't care where you've walked. I don't care who's taken advantage of your love. I don't care how many times you've been thrown aside by someone who wanted to use you up like you were a commodity and said that they loved you just to leave you sad and alone in the wake of their own personal pursuits. There is a pure love. And that pure love, my friends, is found in our almighty God. He has a love which is a selfless, one-way sort of love. His love is undying. His love is unblemished. His love is gracious. He gives with unmerited favor so that you and I can know what true love looks like. One-way love, my friends, is not an unprecedented love. This is the love of the God of creation. And this is not a love for a select few. This is a love for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. This is a love for you. Even if you're his enemy, God loves you. Even if you hate him, God does good for you. You see, this one-way love is a reflection of God's ultimate love for all of mankind. And if you want to live with a one-way sort of love, then, my friends, you must know a one-way sort of love. Because ultimately, if I'm going to live with a one-way love, it's going to have to be a reflection of something that's been placed within me, not something that I possess on my own. And as we come to know the salvation of God, as we come to know His heart for sinners who were desperately wicked against Him, and yet He sent His own Son to die for them, that's how we know what true, selfless, one-way sort of love looks like. That's how we learn. That's how we're equipped. That's how we go and carry this same sort of love. And one-way love is found only in the grace that we have received through Jesus. How do we know that God is good and kind to ungrateful and evil men? Because God took the best of what was His, and He gave it up for our benefit. God had only one Son, the Lord Jesus. And the sacrifice of that one sinless Son was the only thing that we ultimately needed, the one thing we truly needed to be reconciled to God, and yet God did not withhold that which was his prized possession away from us. Though we were sinners, though we had cursed him, though we had spurned his design, though we'd set ourselves up as his enemies, he loved us, and he sent Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve to receive. And he now offers to us eternal life through this same Jesus who is risen from the dead as this promise that those who love and trust in him by faith and turn away from their sins will one day have their own resurrection promised in him. Do you know what one-way love looks like? Do you want to know what one-way love looks like. Look to Jesus. He's the one who has given it all to show you what love truly looks like. You see, Jesus loved his enemies in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did good to those who hated him. Think of the Roman guards who came to take him away to the cross. Even as one of their ears was cut off, Jesus healed this hateful man. Jesus blessed those who cursed him. Think of that thief on the cross who had been hurling insults at him, but ultimately he cries out to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
Jesus prayed for those who mistreated him. Even as he was being executed, he prayed for his executioner, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Why, why would God love us like that? I mean, ultimately, that's the mystery that I don't know if ever, any of us will ever come to fully understand. Why would God call for us to exercise this same sort of love? Well, ultimately, if God's love is for us and God's love has been displayed in this way, then we can know a few things about God's love. You see, God sees a prize in every persecutor. God sees a treasure in every traitor. God sees a jewel in every jerk. God sees that there's an eternity for every enemy. There is a hope for every hater. There is a cure for every cursor. There is a mercy for every mistreater. There is a savior, my friends, for every sinner. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, I just want to say this. Stop looking to your neighbors and how they interact with others to determine how you ought to love other people. Look to Jesus. He is our example. And let us strive to know him with this one way sort of love. Is this a love you need? Are, are you walking in those shoes where time and time again in your life, you've had individuals who really have only just used you up and thrown you aside. Once you had whatever value they thought was valuable to them, used up have you been in that sort of situation where you've started to think maybe there is no such thing as true love that maybe maybe there's no such thing as someone who really cares for you someone who really has your best interests in mind even when you're having a lousy day or a lousy year or a lousy decade as some of us may tend to have right maybe you've never known that sort of love well friends i want to tell you that love is freely available in our god and our savior and he longs for you to know that love. And I just want to call you today, don't spurn that love. His arms are open wide. His forgiveness is ready for you. He has offered all that is needed. He has taken care of all the requirements. All that he asks for you to do is to come by faith. Turn away from whatever you were pursuing that was less than him, and make him the prize of your life, say, I'm going to trust that Jesus has me for all of eternity. Because that one-way love, my friends, is available for you. Would you pray with me now? Father, in these concluding moments as we gather, as we sing, as we contemplate in our hearts, your unfathomable love for us. Father, I pray that, that a couple of things would happen here. I pray first of all for the one who's kind of holding out, Lord, the one who's, who's got other things that are higher priorities, who really feels like one day maybe I'll take care of this Jesus thing, but the day's not today, or, or maybe they're thinking that just don't know if this is a trustworthy sort of love. Father, I just pray that you would help individuals to see that you have split all of history in half and all of eternity shall reign on this sort of love and may individuals who are gathered in this place O lord come to cling to you by faith if that is not where they are 
ultimately resting the hope of all of their eternity right now. So, Father, do what only you can do and draw those who are apart from your love in these moments. And then, Lord, for those of us who do know Christ, God, I pray that you would equip us with a fresh reminder of what true love looks like, of how true love is willing to go in one direction, even when nothing is coming in return. May we have a heart of compassion. Lord, I know there are going to be some folks who are here who are struggling with relationships in their lives. And Father, I just pray that you'd help us to know how you interact with relationships. Help us to know what real love looks like. Help us to pursue real love toward others. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that through this body, through our heart, through our desire to exhibit the love which Christ calls us to, that we would see, O Lord, that you are working in our midst and drawing others to this unfathomable sort of love that we've found in Christ Jesus our Lord. So bless in these moments, Lord, if there are decisions that need to be made. I pray you give courage and wisdom and instruction on how to make those, Lord. Guide us as a body that we might be prepared, equipped, enabled to do all that you've called us to do in these moments. We pray it in Jesus' name.